the weather was so bad, Flyco came on to the Tannoy and said, uh, fixed wing flying for the day is cancelled, launch the gannet. And I was the duty gannet pilot. Welcome to the Avro Heritage Museum podcast. Welcome to the Avro Heritage Museum podcast. The museum is located near Manchester in the UK and you can find more details at avroheritagemuseum.co.uk. We continue our chat with Trevor Jackson, a former Vulcan pilot who recalls his career after flying the Vulcan. Trevor went on to training the members of the Manchester University Air Squadron on the de Havilland Chipmunk and the Scottish Aviation Bulldog. From there, Trevor was transferred to the Royal Navy's Fleet Air Arm, flying the Fairy Gannet, the largest aircraft operated by the Royal Navy off an aircraft carrier. We hear some details of some very perilous deck landings. In 1981, Trevor retires from the RAF and we continue his story into civil aviation and the incredible tale as to how he became connected with the Avro Heritage Museum. I'm delighted to welcome back Trevor Jackson to the Avro Heritage Museum podcast. So after the Vulcan, what, what did you then move on to? Well, I went to... Um South Cerny, uh, Central Flying School, flew the uh, chipmunk. And from there I went to uh, Church Fenton in Yorkshire, uh, where I had my first encounter with the Royal Navy because I went to the Helicopter Specialist Pilots uh, School, and uh, that, which was uh, uh, purely Navy. It was for training uh, their helicopter pilots to uh, fly before flying a helicopter. Uh, I was uh, seconded to uh, Manchester University Air Squadron and I subsequently became chief pilot at uh, Manchester University Air Squadron. We flew out of Woodvale and uh, obviously we went to the university in Oxford uh, Road here in Manchester and uh, that was uh, a fascinating period for me because you would take people who had never flown before and at the end of their uh, or prior to the end of their three years at university, you had got them trained up to take their private pilot's licence, and that was a great, great moment. Halfway through, of course, we got rid of the uh, chipmunks and transferred across to um, the, uh, the Bulldogs, which was uh, an interesting aircraft because it had a heater in it. So uh, uh, gone were the days of the, uh, the frozen feet and hands. But uh, one thing uh, I always recall was that uh, the Battle of Britain cocktail party, which is always held in September at RAF uh, stations, um, one was always asked the question, um, have you ever jumped out of an aeroplane? Well, of course, you didn't want to jump out of an aeroplane that was OK. But it got me thinking, and I went to the RAF Sports Parachute Association at Western on the Green and uh, did a free-fall parachuting course uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed and um, subsequently did quite a few free-fall jumps. So at least then at the Battle of Britain cocktail party, I could say when confronted with this question, have you ever jumped out of an aeroplane? I'd say, well, yes, I've actually jumped out of an aeroplane uh, some 35 times now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, just sorry, just going back to the chipmunk. Uh, the chipmunk did remain operational, didn't it, in Berlin? Was that the only place that you're aware of that the chipmunk was still being used? Uh, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Um, though I didn't know that it was being used in uh, Berlin until I subsequently um, uh, came across a gentleman who who had actually was flying it out in uh, in Berlin. Of course, we changed the colour scheme from uh, the grey to the uh, the white and the red, which, uh, and then subsequently we did the uh, same colour scheme in the uh, in the bulldog. So, from there, where where did you? Ah, very interesting. Um, I got a call from uh, my desk officer in the ministry asking me if I was still interested in going out to Antarctica. Now, that knocked me, I thought, where's that come from? Uh, and I had, uh, while I was on Vulcans at one time, I had put in on my 1369 uh, for future uh, jobs that I would be interested in. I thought flying the Twin Otter out in Antarctica would be an interesting job and thought nothing more of it. And then subsequently, um, there it was, would I like to go out to Antarctica? And I said, well, at this stage, uh, no, thank you very much indeed. But he obviously thought I was a bit of an oddball because uh, when my posting did come up, I was posted to the Royal Navy um, on 849 Squadron to fly the, uh, the Gannet, which uh, I'd never seen. Uh, and it turned out to be the largest aircraft that the Royal Navy had ever operated off an aircraft carrier and I'd never seen HMS Ark Royal either but uh, I soon became familiar with both of them. In fact I went to Lossiemouth to learn how to fly the Gannet and I subsequently flew out to America uh, to join Ark Royal which was uh, in um, uh, Newport. I walked onto the ship, uh, we set sail and uh, one day I was told, well, go and strap yourself in the aircraft and launch off the catapult, which was the first time I'd ever had a catapult launch. Um, and of course, then I had to get back onto the aircraft carrier, which was fun. Um, and subsequently uh, became uh, quite au fait with this mode of flying aircraft. As part of your training, had they, you know, sort of set up a strip to l look like the size of an aircraft carrier or, or not? How, how were you...? Yes, at, at Lossiemouth we had the uh, dummy deck landing uh, system set up where you would see the lights that you would see on the ship. Uh, you would see a square which was the flight deck marked on the side of the runway. Uh, but of course there were no arrestor wires on the runway at all. So that, that was uh, the practice. And certainly um, we did not, with the gannet, uh, go and use the uh, practice uh, catapult launch, which they had, um, I think it was at Bedford. But it must have been radically different to landing on an aircraft carrier that's pitching and, and moving, moving about. I mean, that first landing must have Got the adrenaline going. Uh, somewhat. In fact, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, the uh, two observers in the back uh, were um, recording 
the takeoff and the landing and subsequently presented me with the cassette and there's an awful lot of heavy breathing on it and uh, a few uh, expletives as well. Um, but you're talking about pitching and uh, rolling deck. Um, on one exercise subsequently we were off the Faroe Islands and it was a real stinking uh, Atlantic depression. Grey, the cloud was virtually down to the sea. It was like a scene out of that film, The Cruel Sea, a lot of white horses. Um, we were on a, a, a NATO exercise and the, uh, the weather was so bad, Flyco came onto the tannoy and said, uh, fixed wing flying for the day is cancelled, launch the gannet. <laughs> and I was the duty gannet pilot and I had to crawl out onto this flight deck where there was a 50 mile an hour wind blowing across and the, you could f taste the, uh, the spray, get into this aircraft and we were launched off into this greyness to go and find a couple of enemy ships that were hiding around the fjords um, of the Faroe Islands. Yes, uh, getting back onto the ship was interesting after that. Uh, I think I had a few beers that Yeah, night. No video of that landing? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, interestingly enough, I was, I was on board Ark Royal when the BBC were filming the original Sailor series. We were out in the uh, Caribbean at the time. And I'd got airborne in the gannet and uh, the windscreen cracked, completely crazed over so I couldn't see out the windscreen. And uh, I called Mother, which is what we called the ship, um, and uh, they uh, said, right, um, we'll recover all the other aircraft and you can recover at the end. And so I recovered to the ship, came round in the circuit, lined up. And of course, I could see the ship through the side, but as soon as I lined up, I couldn't see very much at all. Um, and I'm just looking through these little cracks uh, and I managed to land on, and every time you landed, uh, you were debriefed by the landing safety officer, and um, you were graded as to the quality of your uh, deck landing. And uh, some of my deck landings had been uh, questionable, and it was all on the board for all to see. Uh, anyway, uh, Jack said, well, Trevor, he said, uh, that was one of your better landings. I'll give you a green for that one, um, which was fine. And I asked, had the BBC been filming? And uh, he said, no, well, no, we thought you were going to crash on the uh, flight deck. So we got them all out of the way. So my 15 minutes of fame on uh, uh, Sailor never appeared. So. No, but that's, that's pretty impressive. Your best, one of your best landings without actually being able to see the flight deck. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we'll pursue whether I close my eyes thereafter. <laughs> and what what was the role of the Gannet in the in the Royal Navy at that time? It was the airborne early warning uh, aircraft. It had that um, uh, radar underneath. The RAF had got Shackleton's um, up at uh, with H Squadron at uh, Lossiemouth with the same radar uh, underneath the uh, fuselage. And um, the, the purpose was to get airborne, uh, uh, mount a barrier uh, for defence of the fleet. Uh, the two guys in the back had the radar sets. They would be looking for incoming targets. 
and they would direct the uh, phantoms uh, to intercept, or they would direct the buccaneers for offensive work. Now, of course, subsequently, when the Falklands kicked off in 1982, uh, the Navy not only did it not have an aircraft carrier, uh, it didn't have the airborne early warning aircraft either. Um, so um, it was a uh, bit of a struggle uh, without uh, either of those, but uh, obviously uh, were successful uh, in the end anyway. Yeah. And not the most elegant looking aircraft either. No, um, I believe the uh, original test pilot, after his first flight in the gannet, uh, because you, you have uh, steps to go up the side and you have to get your feet in the correct one, otherwise it's rather like getting on a horse, you'll be facing the, the wrong way. And uh, he, in his uh, post uh, uh, flight report said this aircraft is very difficult to get into I think you should make it impossible uh, I don't think I was very impressed by it at all um, what did it fly like um, a bathtub <laughs> so what, probably your least favorite aircraft you flew well it was interesting I, I mean I don't look at aircraft from the point of view of how maneuverable they are it's a, an experience of what they give you um, so uh, it, it had its it had its moments, uh, but uh, let's say yeah, uh, yeah, it's not up there at the high uh, point. Just wanted to quickly go back to the Vulcan. You mentioned that you flew it uh, around the world. What what locations were you were you flying the Vulcan to? Uh, we flew out to uh, Canada to Goose Bay to do a lot of low-flying exercises out there, or we continue on out to uh, Strategic Air Command headquarters at Omaha, uh, where there are lots of B-52s. Uh, so we had a westabout route, uh, and we would then continue on through the Pacific on out to Australia. We also had an eastabout route where we would go down through the Mediterranean, uh, the Middle East, um, GAN in the Indian Ocean, Singapore, and then Australia. Or we would do a complete around the world, and uh, I did that on one occasion, um, flying out west about and coming, continuing on round after our time out in Australia. And what were the purpose of these flights? Well, the uh, Australians wanted um, air defence exercises, so we were quite happy to uh, op offer them that. At one time the Australians were interested in the aircraft uh, as a possible purchase, but of course it, it, it never happened. Uh, the other thing was that we would go out to um, the Australian ranges and uh, drop um, uh, iron bombs out there. So it was all good flying the flag. You've also got to remember that in the late 1960s it was good to see the aircraft in all theatres of the world as a exercise just to let people know we can get anywhere quite quickly. What, what was next for you after the gannet? Um, after the gannet, yes, I came back to the Air Force and flew the Canberra. Interesting enough, it, I was on 360 Squadron at Witten, which was a joint Royal Naval and Royal Air Force Squadron. Now, you may notice that there's quite an RN connection. Um, 
and I did a lot of time with the Royal Navy. Um, and uh, while at Witten, I uh, was coming up for my retirement from the Royal Air Force, and I took my uh, civil uh, aviation licences, and uh, I retired from the Royal Air Force in 1981 and uh, became a commercial pilot in uh, 1982, flying Boeing 737s with uh, Orion Airways to start with. Before we go on to your, your civil career, I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions about your RAF career. What aircraft would you have liked to have flown but never got the opportunity? I didn't say these were going to be easy questions, Trent. Um, the Mosquito. Not that the Mosquito was around when I was there. But when I was growing up, another aircraft that I would have, I absolutely loved looking at was the Sunderland Flying Boat. I thought that was a magnificent uh, way of operating. But of the aircraft that were uh, current while I was in the Air Force, I just am so thankful that I flew so many interesting aircraft and I have fond memories of uh, all of them. Um, been to most places around the world. During that career, what were the hairiest incidents you experienced? Well, I suppose an engine failure on takeoff with the Nats at Valley, um, because the ejection seat was not uh, as good as the uh, Martin Baker, it w it w you couldn't eject at that stage. So the aircraft was put back on the uh, runway. We ran out of runway. We went through the uh, restraining uh, net through the fence at the edge of the airfield, across the uh, muddy track, onto the uh, rocks on the beach, where the aircraft uh, caught a little bit of fire, um, but thankfully one opened the canopy and stepped out onto the uh, beach, having avoided the rocks. Very lucky. How do you pick yourself up after that and get into a plane again? Uh, well, I was flying again later that morning um, we uh, we were picked up by uh, Land Rover taken to the medical center where the doc gave us a quick check over went back to the uh, flight line and uh, oh aircraft get airborne again so um, yeah never never thought anything more of it until you just asked me <laughs> That's the idea of the questions. That's absolutely the idea of the questions. So you, you retire or you leave the RAF in 1981 and transfer to civil aviation. Yep. What is it like to do that change in, in terms of just how, how different is that for you? Well, for a start, you've got passengers. Well, I mean, obviously, in the Royal Air Force, you've got uh, uh, a support command uh, doing exactly the same thing. Uh, but I was not part of that anyway. But in civil flying, uh, I mean, A, the rules are different because you're under the CAA rules, or that you were at that time anyway. And uh, you've, you've got passengers and you've, you've got crew, which was something entirely new. I, I mean, I'm not, not talking about uh, pilots, I'm talking about uh, cabin crew, uh, which I'd never ever had before. And um, 
but you, you just take to it like a duck to water and, um, and that's it. Obviously the places that you fly to are different and it's all very formal flying. Um, certainly no more aerobatics. Did you ever fly to places in Eastern Europe or Moscow or anywhere like that in any of your civil aviation career? Um, I flew to Leningrad uh, on one occasion, uh, or St. Petersburg, I should say. Yes, uh, took the, uh, an orchestra there. Uh, but that was very much later on. I was, that was when I was flying the uh, uh, DC-10 uh, with another company. And but was some of the route familiar to your Vulcan planning? Not really, because we were flying airways, oh. and uh, generally speaking, in the Vulcan, uh, if we were doing high-level work, we were above the airway system anyway. Though, interesting enough, um, I do recall one incident back in the, the Vulcan days, we were flying from Singapore down to Darwin and uh, way above uh, any airway system. And uh, out of courtesy, we would speak to our traffic control and they said, thank you very much. Uh, there is no conflicting traffic. And about uh, 15 minutes later, we espied traffic on a track 90 degrees to ourselves at a very similar altitude and um, wondered what on earth it was and it turned out to be uh, an American uh, aircraft that was not speaking to anybody. Okay, we were fairly close to it uh, but um, obviously uh, we were courteous enough to speak to air traffic control. Uh, other establishments decided that... Uh, was it a military? It was military, yes. military, right, okay. What you've told us about your RAF career is absolutely fascinating. I'm sure you've got some equally interesting anecdotes about your civil aircraft career as well. I started off flying the Boeing 737, then I went on to the Airbus A300B4, which at that time was the world's largest twin-engined uh, jet transport aircraft. Uh, passenger aircraft, anyway. Um, and that was my first encounter with flying with a flight engineer, an interesting breed of people. I subsequently uh, reacquainted myself with them when I flew the uh, DC-10. Um, to fly the A300, I went to Habag Lloyd uh, in Germany, and that was a very uh, fine little interlude. Uh, operating with um, the, the Germans based in Hamburg uh, and uh, Frankfurt. Orion became absorbed into Britannia Airways in about 1987, I think. And I uh, had um, an opening with Monarch Airlines, which I took up. So I transferred across to Monarch and I flew the Boeing 757 to start off with. And then when they acquired the uh, uh, DC-10, I transferred over to that. And that, for me, was a joy to fly. Um, nice big aeroplane, three flight deck crew, the flight engineer, and uh, we went all over the place with that aircraft. And that was um, great fun. Stories to tell. I suppose the first time I went to uh, Las Vegas which of course is known as 
mile-high city, and um, the airfield um, has got a very long runway. It needs it. And uh, we were taking off with a full load to come back to the UK. And uh, I can remember us using up an awful lot of the uh, 12,000 foot of runway. Um, And I'm thinking, I hope we are going to get airborne here. And of course we did. Um, But then we were into clear air turbulence for the next three hours. And it was the most uncomfortable flight until we got to uh, the eastern seaboard. When uh, the Twin Towers uh, were taken out, we, with the uh, DC-10, were doing a lot of uh, rescue flights uh, to Florida. And it was quite harrowing flying past uh, New York with this pall of smoke coming up. And um, the the aircraft was uh, subsequently uh, taken out of service. Um, I then, for my last year until I had to retire due to uh, my age, uh, went and flew the um, uh, DC-10 with what was then known as Air Tours here at Manchester. And then I had to retire because of my age in um, 2002 after having flown for 37 years and some uh, 16,500 hours of flying. So uh, I look back and think, uh, I've done what I wanted to do from the age of 10 in my life, and it's been uh, quite an enjoyable ride. That's an incredible length of time to be flying, an incredible number of hours there. When, When you were flying into Manchester, did you see the White Vulcan at Woodford? I did indeed, and I would look out and see it on the airfield here and think, oh, they've got an old B-1 on the airfield there. How interesting. And I thought nothing of it. And of course, by a quirk of fate, many years later, um, I come onto the airfield here because uh, we were looking for uh, a new home and the airfield was just being developed at that time. We went into the sales office and there in the corner was a model of a white Vulcan, XM603. And I read the uh, story on the wall and it was fairly obvious that the aircraft that they had here was not a Mark I, it was a Mark II. Not only was it a Mark II, it was actually a Mark II that I'd actually flown. And I dug out my logbook and there it was, and it was the aircraft that I had actually taken out to Australia in 1968. Um, we have another aircraft here at the museum, um, or the, the cockpit anyway, XM602, and um, I've actually flown that one as well. So uh, not only do I live here on the airfield, but um, I've flown both the aircraft that we, or both the Vulcans that we have here. So I have a, a, a quite a um, unique connection with uh, the museum. A very unique connection, I would say. Trevor, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, that has been fascinating for me, and I'm sure it would be fascinating for others as well. Make sure you follow us in your podcast app to ensure that you don't miss out on future episodes.